Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 24, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. This is the word of God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful. We come to you, the great king of glory himself. We're excited to look into your word And uh, we just pray, Father, that you would be working mightily, that your Holy Spirit would come upon us with power. I have no power, Lord, but your word has power, your spirit has power. Pray that uh, you would do something in us that would be supernatural, that we'd be conformed to the likeness of Christ, that we understand something more of who you are, what you require from us, and what you've done in the glory of your Son. For Jesus' sake, amen. Please be seated. Of all the most fundamental questions in life, the most basic are these. Is there a God? If so, who or what is God? If God does exist, and most people do conclude that an eternal creator must necessarily exist in order for anything else to exist. If so, is it possible to know him? Or is he so different than us that that would be impossible? Those who read the Bible might ask more specific questions than these, like, how does such a God engage with his creation? What kind of relationship can we have with him? What does he require of us? These questions become more than just academic as we consider that nothing is more important for us personally than where we will spend eternity. And Psalm 24 explores these questions on a few different levels. And we're going to consider this psalm in a few different ways. First, there's likely, we can't be certain this event, but there's likely an historical occasion for this psalm, which was written by David, we know that. And the occasion perhaps is found in 2 Samuel 6, when they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem after a battle where God had given the Israelites victory over the Philistines. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant was connected to God's presence at that time in the covenant. And 
that presence would go out into battle before the armies of Israel and then return to the tabernacle in Jerusalem. There are three sections in this psalm, and we'll walk through these sections in this original, what we believe is the original context. But then we're going to consider how this psalm is taking on additional meaning in light of the rest of Scripture. That is to say, as redemptive history unfolded, in particular, as Jesus came as king, how this psalm became a model for understanding the kingship of Jesus. And then later in church history, this psalm became a favorite to be used on Ascension Sunday, the 40 days after Easter when Jesus ascended into heaven to be seated at the place of authority at the Father's right hand. And then finally, we will consider this psalm personally. We'll do a little bit of that throughout, but at the end we'll consider it very personally because this psalm is very instructive for answering the fundamental questions of life, questions about God and our relationship with him, which I mentioned at the beginning. So I invite you to follow along in your, in your bulletin outline. And first there you'll see God is the king of creation. Let's read the first two verses again. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And when we consider who God is as it relates to us, we must start with his role in creation. The Lord created everything that exists, everything that can be seen and everything that cannot be seen was made by him. Genesis 1 starts with the preexistence of God and the fact that he created everything, and therefore he owns it all. Psalm 89, the heavens are yours, the earth is also yours, and the world and all that is in it, you have founded them. He has absolute authority over all of it. Everything in creation, including us, belong to him. We are the Lord's, Exodus 19, for all the earth is mine. As our creator, it is his right then to define who we are and what we do. Verse 2 says it differently. That he has founded the world upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. David speaks here of creation in poetic, not scientific terms. He's describing things as they appear. And his emphasis is on land where humankind dwell. He made human beings in his image and he owns us. And his ownership and rule extend to all people, even to those who do not acknowledge him at all. His dominion is over all. Ezekiel 18. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. He created all and is sovereign over all. And he sustains it all. Hebrews 1. He sustains all things by his powerful word. Plummer says this, If there was in the world one man or one creature or one atom over which God was not sovereign, it would be impossible to foretell the evil and confusion that might follow. Take a deep breath right now with me. Only by his grace were you able to to do that. Each new breath, every step you take on this earth is a step on what is his 
not yours. He's the sole proprietor of it all. And because he's creator and owner, he's also judge. He decides, he alone decides how things operate and how things should be. Because he created all, he has authority to judge it all. All his creation and its inhabitants. Psalm 96. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Everything that exists is totally dependent on him for existence, and he exercises authority and judgment over it. It's not like a king who conquered a land and now has authority. No. He's always been the king of creation. He made it, he sustains it, and he alone is judged because all things were made for his glory, not for the glory of his creatures, but for his own glory. So, to act in ways contrary to his glory, to act in ways contrary to his will, which the Bible calls sin, is cosmic treason, as someone has said. It is taking away his rights. It is fraud. It is theft. It is robbery. It is rebellion. Sin is going our own way. Now, now that his creative power and authority over all creation has been established, David now turns to the creature who would enter the presence of this God. Secondly, the king of holiness. Verse 3, let's read through verse 6. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Who shall ascend, refers to going up in this context, to Jerusalem, to worship at the tabernacle. These questions assume God's holiness or otherness. R.C. Sproul has famously drawn attention to the repetition of certain words in the Bible. Ancient Languages didn't really have punctuation, like we have exclamation points and, and such today. So the way to draw attention to something was to repeat it. You see this with Jesus when he frames what he's about to say with the preface, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you. Draws attention to the, and emphasizes his point. Well, the only threefold repetition of a word we see in Scripture is what we sang this morning in Isaiah chapter 6, when the angels worship the Lord with the refrain, holy, holy, holy. This super superlative emphasis is on the Lord's holiness. He's his separateness. He's in a completely different league of purity, an entirely different category of perfection. So, with an understanding of the king's holiness, these questions... Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? These questions cause humility and reflection on the need for repentance and God's mercy. Not some kind of self-righteous innocence, but an admission of dependence as the worshiper approaches. Priests may have called these questions out as part of the liturgy. Well, let's consider the answers to these questions in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, 
Okay, clean is, this word's most used frequently when uh, referring to not taking innocent blood. So clean hands are those not involved in taking innocent life, not deserving punishment. This is an external category. But pure heart is internal, isn't it? You might think of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus connects these, doesn't he? The heart or, or uh, the center of your desires or the command station of the will, from that place, from the heart, come all external actions and words. So what is required is not merely an outward compliance with God's law, but a pure heart, an inward whole person dedicated to God's character. At this stage in the history of God's people and covenant, the, the sacrifices were the means along with the law, that the sacrifices were part of the law, where the people would become clean. So those who were faithful to the covenant, all in with Yahweh, believing God's promises, were faithful in participation in and through the gracious sacrificial system. Next he adds, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. What is false here is idolatry. We see it throughout the Old Testament. Not lifting up your soul to what is false is not worshiping an idol or a different God. Not allowing something other than the true God, Yahweh, to be the object of your deepest commitments. Remember, people, these people living in foreign lands or what used to be residual foreign lands on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, are you all in with Yahweh, the Lord? Or are you being pulled by other gods? There was pressure throughout Israel's history to assimilate idols of other nations with their own religious practices. The same is true in America, by the way. We have a tendency to want to mix things with Christianity. They're told they cannot come unless they're fully worshiping him alone. Come in the sense of blessing. Those who do receive blessing from the Lord. Only with those sacrifice covering them and those who are all in with the Lord and his covenant can ascend and receive blessings of God. It's important to note that all Israel may attend and come up in procession in this event, but not all are blessed. Not everyone will receive this blessing. Only holy people, period. We read something similar in Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tabernacle, who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly, we'll come back to that word in a minute, and does what is right, speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend. Now, this idea of being blameless in the Old Testament was not sinless perfection. Okay, rather, all in faithfulness to the covenant. Okay, your motive, your manner, you have integrity with what God requires. Again, during the time of the sacrificial system was in place. So, for those who were faithful to the covenant, not speaking of those who faultlessly complied with an external law, but rather those willing to submit to God's claim as king of creation, creator and owner of all, to be shaped by God's instruction, his law. One reason we know this is not a requirement of sinless perfection is because of what else is promised here. Look at what else they receive. Second part of verse 5. They receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. They receive the blessing and they receive 
righteousness from God their Savior. Righteousness is a legal term. Someone who has fulfilled justice properly is declared righteous. Good standing with God. The NIV renders this vindication. So this righteousness is something that's received as part of the blessing. They had a right relationship with God. So to receive righteousness from the God of your salvation means you don't earn it. You're saved and given it. Okay, this is, sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul, doesn't it? They were in need of righteousness and salvation. Only a humble person could receive this blessing. Think of Luke 18. The Pharisee says, I'm thankful I'm not like other men. In other words, I have my own righteousness that they don't have. The tax collector, on the other hand, says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. In other words, I need your righteousness. Jesus said that man, the tax collector, not the other, went home justified or declared righteous. Such is the generation, verse 6, of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Seeking the face of God means a desire to find and commune with God whatever it takes. A true believer seeks him. O'Brien writes this, Seeking the Lord is a common biblical expression, particularly in the Psalms, to refer to those who rely firmly on God, trust that his promises will be fulfilled, and find in him the source of their deepest satisfaction. So who will ascend? Who will stand in the holy place? The humble. Those who know they need God's blessing, his righteousness. The faithful, those who are all in with this God, rejecting false gods and idolatry. The pure, those who reject evil actions, repent of thoughts. You see here that truth and practice are inseparable, aren't they? Those who believe and seek the face of this God, relying on him for blessing and salvation and righteousness, are also those who live accordingly with clean hands and a pure heart. It is false teaching today, it is false teaching in any age, to divorce right belief and right conduct. They must go together. Plummer writes this, one of the masterpieces of satanic craft has been to affect a divorce between morality and faith. I'm paraphrasing a little. While God's plan is to join them inseparably together. Morality without faith is but a smooth way of descending into hell. Faith without morality is monstrous. Neither hypocrites nor self-righteous Pharisees, nor those who merely profess allegiance to this God but don't live it out, none of them can ascend to the Lord's presence and receive the blessing. This is the king of holiness. Clean hands and a pure heart must accompany a valid profession of faith in the Lord. This principle hasn't changed in the new covenant. Remember what we saw about a month ago in Hebrews chapter 12. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. For those who ascend, those who are blessed, those who receive righteousness, there's an integrity between their faith in the Lord and their actions. So, blessed ones, these blessed ones, have admission to the tabernacle area. They've gathered with other worshipers, anticipating the arrival of the king, the presence of God himself, the king of victory. Let's read now the third and final section of the psalm. Remember, the likely 
historical occasion, this return of the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, as it were, from the battlefield with the Philistines, back into Jerusalem through the gates, and ultimately into the tabernacle area. Verse 7, let's read to the end. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. We see an escalating refrain here, what is called by some the gate liturgy, what was probably recited as this happened, starting with this sort of a, a get ready because the King of glory is coming in. The, the lifting of the head is honoring the king. Now, this word glory, kabod, it's a fascinating word, rich word. It has the connotation of, of heaviness or weightiness. God is weighty. There's, there's, a, there's a gravity of who, in who he is. Christopher Morgan writes this, God is so much bigger than our speaking or thinking of him. God is, in other words, so much bigger than our theology. He's before it, around it, at the end of it, and over it. Speaking and thinking about God, then, can be a daunting task indeed. Or John Piper. The term glory of God in the Bible generally refers to the visible splendor or moral beauty of God's manifold perfections. It's an attempt to put into words what cannot be contained in words. What God is like in his unveiled magnificence and excellence. When you consider the entrance of the king of glory, the last thing you're thinking about is yourself. As someone has said, no one has stood at the rim of the Grand Canyon in all its splendor and at the same time think highly of himself. Morgan again. The glory of God is the compass that keeps all our theologizing, pastoring, and Christian living oriented in the right direction, toward God, not toward ourselves. Nothing compares to his glory. So nothing should ever get in the way of our allegiance and obedience and worship, right? We see this question in verse 8, who is this king of glory, is answered in military victory language. He's the almighty, the Lord of hosts, strong and mighty in battle. He commands armies, both on earth, as in the context of the victory over the Philistines here, but also heavenly armies. The Lord of hosts, of angelic forces, battling and victorious. He's the king of victory. He's sovereign. Over all powers and enemies. We see in the previous Psalm 23, Psalm 23, in the presence of my enemies, the Lord of glory is the defeater of enemies, the divine warrior. I will fear no evil. There's no reason to fear anything else. Lift up your heads. He's here. Praise, worship, rejoice. Jonathan Edwards, God is not glorified. I'm sorry, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. So you see this repetition of praise for emphasis. Who is this king of glory? I'll tell you again. It's the Lord of hosts, the commander of the armies of angels. He is the king of glory. 
Who else could you possibly worship? Who else could you possibly put your hope in? Who else could you possibly love? Who else could you possibly give your life and allegiance to than this king of glory? Now, while this historical occasion may indeed have been when David brought the ark back into Jerusalem, this psalm is much bigger and more significant than that event. And we see this when we, when we consider this psalm canonically or, or in light of the rest of Scripture. And that ultimately, number four, Jesus is the king of glory. When we ask the question, who shall ascend, in, in the ultimate sense, no one is qualified but Christ alone. Only Jesus had absolutely clean hands and an absolutely pure heart. And in terms of what is false, he embodied the truth. Nothing false about him. Think of the incarnation. Joy to the world. Let earth receive her king. Okay, lift up your heads, O gates and doors, that the king of glory may come in. Or think of Paul on Sunday. As Jesus entered the gates of Jerusalem, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, that the king of glory might come in. Well, ironically, they didn't ultimately let him in in that sense, did they? But in their refusal and rejection of the king, they fulfilled an even grander prophecy. There's a really interesting connection between Psalm 22 23, and then this Psalm 24. Psalm 23, most of you know, the Lord is my shepherd. But Psalm 22 is a psalm of suffering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very words Jesus proclaims from the cross as he experiences the weight of judgment for our sin. And the Father, according to the agreement within the Godhead before, the, before time began within the Trinity, according to that plan, the Father did not rescue the Son. And Jesus endured the weight of wrath and judgment for our sin. But in that suffering of Psalm 22, we find our salvation. And the Lord leads us out of death into life like a good shepherd, Psalm 23. Through the evil valleys and darkness, he leads us into life, into rest, into victory in the presence of our enemies. And then as the capstone of his accomplishment of salvation, he ascends to the Father as the King of glory, seated in heaven at the right hand of the Most High, Psalm 24. Think of the sections in this psalm. First, Jesus Christ is the King of creation. He's the creator of all things. Nothing was made that he didn't make. John 1, Colossians 1. As Abraham Kuypers famously said, There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who's sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Second, Jesus Christ is the king of holiness. He alone is qualified to ascend into heaven and stand in the ultimate holy place because of his absolute purity. We consider this in many different ways in Hebrews. Third, Jesus Christ is the king of victory. He's defeated all the great enemies, Satan, sin, death, ultimately the world. He sat down at the right hand of God in his rightful place of regal authority and majesty. Jesus Christ is the king of glory. As as Christopher Morgan summarizes 
Psalm 22, 23, and 24, Savior, Shepherd, and Sovereign. Through his suffering, he triumphed as Savior. He became a shepherd who leads his own into rest and is now ascended to his place of sovereign authority. In his cross and resurrection, he's passed through Psalm 22, leads his people, Psalm 23, and now is claiming absolute victory Psalm 24. And for these reasons, throughout church history, this psalm has frequently been preached on Ascension Day, 40 days after the resurrection, when Jesus ascended into heaven after his passion and enters as the king of glory. Let me read 1 Timothy 3. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, that is Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Who is this king of glory? Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Amen. The whole idea, we talk about the already not yet of our sort of in-between salvation state, it really is encapsulated and pictured in his ascension. He secured our salvation. He now intercedes for us on on the basis of that victory. He's enthroned at the place of authority, but his reign is not yet fully consummated. Paul Scrabeck's going to preach next month on Psalm 2, where we will see this tension as well. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? He who sits in the heavens laughs. Who is the king of glory? Only Jesus is king over all the nations. Only Jesus can mediate eternal life. Only Jesus has gone before us in the experience of redeemed humanity, in his baptism, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension. And in his future return, he will come back to get us and take us into this very glory, into the presence of God and eternal life. All these results will be realized. You may have seen on the news this week that Jeff Bezos of Amazon, the richest person in the world, is funding eternal life. He's invested millions in a Russian startup genetic laboratory hoping his money will help find the key to everlasting life. Here's the good news. We don't need money from Bezos or anyone else. Eternal life has been paid for in full. Jesus paid it all. And death has been defeated already. Jesus is the king of glory. So how should we respond? Next in your outline and last. First, letter A. Recognize his power and ownership. You are not your own. This message is perhaps more scandalous today than ever in history. We live in an age of extreme autonomy. Other cultures and, and times in history wouldn't even have a concept 
for this kind of autonomy. I do what I want, when I want. I define my reality however I wish. And you need to live in my reality according to my definitions of who I believe I am, as divorced from truth as that might be. Here's the truth. You did not create yourself. You actually do not have the right to live how you want, do what you want, or even be who you want. I know that's un-American, but you were created fearfully and wonderfully made by your creator. And you owe him your very life. The only path to true flourishing and contentment is to come again under his rule. Unfortunately, we as a race of humanity, have collectively and individually fallen away from his will for us. We've taken our own way instead. And that way leads to misery and it leads to destruction. When we go our own way, we go against the grain of the universe. We're not operating according to how we were designed, how we were created. We were created to be in a joyful relationship with our creator, but going our own way in rebellion against his authority, against his right to rule over us, has made that kind of relationship with him impossible on our own terms. So first, we need to recognize the king of creation has absolute authority over us. He owns us, and we do not have the right to go our own way. Secondly, Reject idols and repent of impurity. We cannot just enter into his presence in a careless or casual manner. hope this psalm's clear about that. No one sees God without holiness. Who shall ascend to the hill? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? These aren't just questions about who will be able to properly worship God here. These are questions about who will be able to be with and worship God in eternity. In the new heaven and new earth promised at the end of history. Ever since Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden for going their own way, this question has been relevant ever since then for humanity. Who shall ascend? It is those who turn to the king of holiness as the only one they worship. Those who reject other gods in their lives. Whether it's the god of sex, money, possessions, fame, comfort, Or less visible gods, like family, your kids, your career fulfillment, even your own good works as a source of pride. All these things can become false gods or idols that keep you from the king of holiness. We need to repent of all things impure. This just means, repent just means to turn away from those things. Turn away from what the Bible calls sin. Self-fulfillment, self-focus, self-centeredness. Turn away from that. And in that repentance, we humbly recognize that we have went our own way. And even when we've tried to do the best we can, we fall far short of his glory, as Romans 3 tells us. And so we also repent of our self-efforts to be good. And instead, turn away from that. Instead, turn to him, Jesus, for the blessing and his righteousness, which he offers us. So third, receive his righteousness and presence. Ultimately, no one enters the gates of eternal life without God's intervention. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. This is what happens to those who repent and turn to Jesus. 
He's writing about those who have done that. For life, forgiveness, righteousness. Listen to this. Who they were and who they become. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, going against the grain, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, enemy number one, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, going our own way. And we're by nature children of wrath, antagonistic, hostile with God, like the rest of mankind. But God, here's the gospel, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. Are you getting the theme? Toward us in Christ Jesus. Here it is again. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That's trust. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one can take credit for this. For we are his workmanship. Listen, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Good works are important, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's the deal. Your true moral life, the life you were designed to live, the life of his workmanship, the good works he has for you to do, only possible through Jesus Christ, by coming to him with an empty hand, recognizing you have nothing to offer and you trust in him, in his death and resurrection, that your sins going your own way may be forgiven. You might be filled with the Holy Spirit to live rightly, to fulfill these works he has for you, that you might be saved by his grace through faith, trusting him alone. Not, Paul says, by your own works, but by his works. Receive his Righteousness. Listen to Spurgeon on Psalm 24. It is possible that you're saying, I shall never enter the heaven of God, for I have neither clean hands nor a pure heart. Look then to Christ, who has already climbed the holy hill. He has entered as the forerunner of those who trust him. Follow in his footsteps and repose upon his merit, his good works. He rides triumphantly into heaven, and you shall ride there too if you trust him. As Chuck Swindoll says, the only gate he won't enter is the heart that keeps him out. So don't keep him out. Receive the king of glory as your king, your savior. As Plummer says, Christ must be received. This is indispensable. Not to welcome him is to reject him. Not to open the heart to him is to bar it against him. Receive his presence. He promises never to leave you or forsake you. Cast open the gates of your heart to receive the king of glory. And finally then, rejoice in his victory. If you have experienced victory in Jesus, rejoice in it. Jesus tells his disciples in John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you might have peace. Then he says, in the world you'll have tribulation. Well, wait wait a second. So he said, peace. No. He says, take heart. I have overcome the world. 
The struggles we have, brothers and sisters, the suffering we may be enduring, and it's real. Believe me, I know that. It's real. The enemies that battle against us, which are real. Listen, it's all temporary. Persevere to the end because Jesus has overcome the world. Our real struggle is not against flesh and blood, Paul writes. We have real enemies seeking to discourage us and defeat us. Enemies in the spiritual realm. But Jesus, through his cross and resurrection, had sealed their defeat already. Colossians 2, through this victorious work on the cross, God disarmed these rulers and authorities in the spiritual realms and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Christ. So walk in victory. The defining event, defining event of our victory is in the past on the cross. It's already happened. We live in this strange time, as I alluded to earlier, this in-between time, already not yet. We live in a time awaiting the king's return. It's a little bit like maybe the legend of Robin Hood. You've heard the story of Robin Hood and his friends. They were living in exile in the forest, doing their work, awaiting the return of the rightful King Richard. They had a real enemy working against them, a fake king on a fake throne, Prince John, with the Sheriff of Nottingham helping him out. Like Robin Hood, it can feel like we're on the losing side at times. It can be so difficult. There's injustice all around us. This is why Robin Hood needed to remember who the rightful king was. And why we need to remember who our rightful king is. And despite how difficult it is, despite how much injustice and suffering we might see or endure, we do not get deluded by the fake king on his fake throne. For Robin Hood, King Richard the Lionhearted, did return and put everything in order. We look forward to the return of our king. Though, unlike Robin Hood, our true king, while physically absent intercedes for us right now as we approach him in prayer while we wait eagerly for his return when we will open the gates wide for the king of glory, the Lord of hosts. The king of victory will enter to consummate his reign. Come, Lord Jesus. Are you weary, brother? Are you weary, sister? Are you tired of evil, and injustice winning in the world? Are you tired of battling the same kinds of sins every single day? Are you exhausted by strained relationships in your family? Are you weary of health issues? Are you tired of not winning your battles? Look to the King of glory. When we grow weary, we must remember not only the victory He's already won for you, But also, importantly, remember how the story ends. Let me read it for you. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Amen. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which it is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth come a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. 
He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Hosts. Lord of Lords. This is the Lord of Hosts we're talking about. The general of the armies of angels. Satan now roams. But that day, one little word shall fell him, Luther says. He's already sealed the defeat of all the principalities and evil powers. All enemies on his cross. He's risen in victory. He's ascended in power. At this very moment, he sits at the right hand in absolute authority. He's not intimidated by right-wing or left-wing cultural trends. He's not intimidated by family dynamics. He's not intimidated by terminal illness. He's not intimidated by lies on social media. He's not intimidated by politicians or by Supreme Court decisions. He's not intimidated by anything. He is the king of glory. Victory is already his. And when he returns, if you are all in with him, that victory will be shared with you. As Barker says, the strength of our salvation consists in this, that our redeemer and intercessor is the Lord of hosts. Every other work shall be destroyed, but the work of redemption is forever. Let me close by reading a familiar passage just to, again, recalibrate our minds as we go forth. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he also not graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Rejoice in his victory. Please stand with me as we close. Lord, you are indeed the king of glory, and we long for your return when you will wipe out the enemy once and for all. In the meantime, we're so grateful that we can intercede, that you intercede for us, and we can intercede for others with that great power and victory that you've already won. Strengthen us, Father, to do this work. For those, Lord, here that, who are listening that are not right with you, that cannot climb that holy hill on their own. None of us can. May they look to Jesus. May they embrace his righteousness and blessing. May they turn from themselves and follow him so that you would never leave them or forsake them. It's for your glory we pray. Amen.